Hey, everybody. I'm John Donvan from Intelligence Squared U.S., and in this episode, we're not presenting a debate as we usually do. Instead, we're doing something we do from time to time, which is to have a deep and rich and fascinating conversation about a thing that matters greatly to all of us at Intelligence Squared U.S., and that is the quality of discourse, uh, particularly the quality of our national political discourse. It's something we care deeply about. It, in fact, inspired our founder, Robert Rosencrantz, to start Intelligence Squared with the aim of raising the level of public discourse, which I think we do pretty well. But let's face it, as a culture, uh, especially nowadays, we have a way to go, which is why in this podcast I'm sitting down with Arthur Brooks, who is one of our nation's most influential political thinkers, to discuss his new book, whose title is this, Love Your Enemies, How Decent People can save America from the culture of contempt. And in his book, uh, Arthur goes into what's going wrong right now with American political discourse and actually comes up with some constructive or at least constructive sounding ideas on how Americans can better talk to each other, especially when we are not agreeing with each other. So let's chat. Arthur Brooks, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Thank you, John. Great to be with you. Uh, it's great to have you uh, on this podcast, especially as I've just completed a book that so directly goes to the topic that, uh, that as I said before, motivates Intelligence Squared U.S., which is the, uh, the quality and, and also the lack of quality of our political discourse, actually even our cultural discourse because sure. beyond politics. Um, just to remind folks, uh, you you are uh, have been for years the president of the American Enterprise Institute. Um, you're, you'll be leaving that post fairly soon. Yeah, June 30th, 2019. Uh, you you were there nine years? Something and like ten that? and a half. Ten and a half, my ten goodness. Half. But who's counting? <laughs> <laughs> You've written a lot of books. A lot of them have been bestsellers. Eleven books. Uh, you have a podcast of your own. Uh, you've Your new book, I just mentioned the title, Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks to IQ Squared. There are very few institutions that have done more to improve the quality of discourse in the United States and help people remember that we can talk about things and disagree in a way where the disagreement per se makes us smarter and better. Well, we try. And I'd like to talk a little bit about why perhaps it works on our stage mm -hmm. and how that relates to what you're talking about. But let's define some of the terms that are in the title of your book. Right. Um, the obvious one is contempt, but I want to go to the other one first. Decent yeah. people. Who are yeah. the decent people? Anybody who wants to actually improve the country, anybody who wants to get more love. And, and you know, the, the point is, in a, in a title of a book, you want to inspire people to be better. You want people to open the book because they want to be better. At least that's why I want people to buy my books. There are a lot of books that you can actually buy because you find out you can whack somebody with it. You can hurt somebody. That's not what I'm trying to do. So I basically say if you consider yourself to either be a decent person or aspire to be a more decent person, this is a book for you. Is there an impl implication that there are indecent people, that, you know, the, the deplorables in one sense or another? The implication is that there are people who are behaving in an indecent way. Mm -hmm. And one of the points I make in the book is that until we can start remembering that we must separate people from their ideologies, we're never going to be able to persuade anybody. The, the, it's a very practical book in this way. You know, we're locked down into opposing ideologies in this country. There are people who are making money from and fame and power from keeping us locked down into these corners. And we're not persuading anybody. I mean, one of the one of the most fascinating things is that politics, which is fundamentally the, the science and art of persuasion, is now being become the science and art of, of locking down your base and saying the other side is stupid and evil, which is typically what happens in a polarized time of tremendous populism. And, and one of the things that I'm intending to do with this book is to make the practical argument that if we want to persuade other people because we think that our values are important, we think that they're correct for the country and indeed for the world, then we're going to have to go about it in a different way. Step one is not saying that because somebody has a deviant idea, that somebody has a terrible idea, maybe even an evil idea, that means that that person is stupid, deviant, and evil. Which brings us to the word contempt, the mm -hmm. other word in your book's title, which I'll read one more time, Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. Yeah. What is this culture? I think you were just touching on it. Yeah, for sure. So, so contempt is a very interesting concept that has been defined by philosophers and psychologists. It's not anger. Anger is a hot emotion that says, John, I, I, I don't like what you're saying, what you're thinking. I want to change it. <laughs> I want to make it better. Contempt is a cold cognition or a, a cold emotion that says you are beneath caring about. One of the things 
that we have is a lot of uh, uh, neurological sensors to know when somebody's treating us with contempt. If you want an, an enemy forever, treat the person with contempt, which takes anger and mixes in disgust. Mm. Schopenhauer said that the contempt is the is the conviction of the utter worthlessness of another person. And one of the things that we find, I mean, I've done there's a lot of research in this book. There's a lot of social science and, and brain science research, and among other things, it shows that the main predictor of divorce is spouses treating each other with contempt. You, you can fight all day long, cats and dogs. There's no correlation between separation or divorce and anger. You know, thank God. I mean, because a lot of people, you know, fight all the time. When you add in disgust for that person, the person for whom you owe the greatest love, that's the biggest predictor of divorce. So eye-rolling, sarcasm, uh, derisive humor, dismissal, kind of all the way we treat each other in, in America about politics. So contempt is important, you're saying, not just as something that you feel towards the other, but something that you also communicate to the other. You can't You're hide getting it. it across. You can't hide it. I mean, contempt is a, is a really hard thing to, really tough thing to hide because when you actually feel it uh, and, and, and you try to hide it, you will generally betray it. A psychologist one time told me that most human conflict comes from, from contempt that is improperly hidden. <laughs> and, and so you can kind of tell when somebody dismisses you, when somebody doesn't take you seriously, and where somebody thinks that you are less in a certain way. And that's, so therefore, if we want to improve, if you want to improve your marriage, if we want to improve the discourse in our nation, if we want to improve our nation, indeed, we need to declare war on contempt. And, you know, this is a very interesting thing for me, John, because I'm an institutional guy. I mean, I work in Washington, D.C. in this big think tank. I talk about politics and politicians and, and government and leaders. And I realize that that changing leadership is not the way for us to have a revolution to improve our country. It re requires, at the grassroots, revolution within. We have to declare war on contempt in ourselves if we want to be more persuasive and and in fact, as I show in the book, much happier. Do you, do you think those of us who feel and express contempt are inadvertent in that or are we nurturing it in ourselves? So that's a good question because I think that both types happen. Uh, it, most people do express contempt and that has become the national tendency in the way that we talk about politics, which once again is the reason, I mean there are a lot of reasons for that, but there are reasons, that's the reason that we've locked down into opposing camps and we're not, nobody is persuading anybody at this point. Now, why do we do it? And, and, and again, I'm guilty. You know, I've seen myself on television, old clips as I was writing this book, talking into debating about some, the minimum wage or something that I care about, rolling my eyes when somebody says something that I think is really incorrect. You have rolled your eyes on television? I have rolled my eyes on television. I'm, I'm, I'm guilty. And, and, and I, re I recognize that that's been incredibly counterproductive because at that moment, I rule out the possibility that my interlocutor might say, huh, good point. Zero percent chance at that point because I've made an enemy. I've said, you're worthless. You are worthless. What you have said has rendered you worthless, which is totally counterproductive. So I, I think that most people like me have a habit of it. You know, I, I've seen these data that are very provocative that 93% of Americans hate how divided we become as a country. 93%. Nothing pulls at 93%. So why would so many people behave with this contempt toward the other side, whatever the other side happens to be, when we hate how divided we become? And the answer is because we're not conscious of the fact that this has become our national political discourse. Okay, that's one part. That's almost everybody listening to us today. The problem is the other, if that's 93% that hate it, that means 7% don't. And, you know, the people who don't hate the polarization, the bitterness, the contempt, the hatred uh, ideologically, I call them the outrage industrial complex. These are people for whom it's not a habit. It's a way of life. Mm -hmm. People want to fire us up. People on Twitter, anonymous people, but even major personalities who say the other side is stupid and evil. People in politics who are highly polarizing to in order to gin up support. Media is a, is, a, is a huge parade of screaming heads and hateful pundits who say you're right and the other side is deviant. And in college campuses, you know, you have people who are training young people in the idea that people who disagree with you are, are dangerous, they're bad, they're not to be dealt with at all, they're to be shunned. I mean, these are the people who, for whom, uh, these really are the ringleaders in our culture of contempt in America today. And, and we have to take on that challenge. But I want to look at that 93%. Right. That 93% is the audience for all of those contemptuous performers that Correct. you're talking about. And at some level, although you're saying that that 93% says they hate how divided they are, they, it seems to me that many, many, many of them, I don't have numbers on this, I'm going with gut, are participating in this uh, practice, in this performance of contempt. And, yes, and for sure. I, I sort of think it's, you know, again, anecdotally, you poll people about you know, do, do you do you think public television is valuable? Yes. Do they watch it? No. Right. Or do you think sugar is bad for you? Yes. Do you eat it? Yes. Um, you know, we right. do things that that are detrimental to us. So at right. some level, 
is are is contempt not playing well in the culture because there's something about it that we like? Yeah, and we like it, but we hate it. It's an addiction. It's one of the things that I argue in this book that is when we look at social media that says the other side are creeps and, and they're bad people, that they're evil, that they're not just wrong, they're they're fundamentally they're 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 defective as people. When when we look at that stuff, it gives us a little burst of the neurotransmitter dopamine. And you know, one of the things that we know is that social media, particularly when social media is firing us up, we get the the same kind of thing that we get from lighting up a cigarette. Well, tons of people smoke. Lots of people are addicted to substances. I know nobody who says, you know, the best thing in my life is my addiction to cigarettes. It's it's most people wish they didn't smoke. You know, certainly alcoholics wish they were not alcoholic, and yet they can continue to pursue their addiction day after day because the dopamine hit is simply too strong. A lot of people use social media in this way. They, they, they look at cable television um, rather compulsively. They, they engage siloed social media feeds simply because scratching that itch is really very, very powerful in America today, despite the fact that These they kind of know. These are saying, stop me before I watch Fox again, or <laughs> stop me before I watch Rachel again. I think that there's basically a lack of cognition of that, because most people oh. are not saying, stop me before I smoke again. They're saying, yeah, you know, it's, it's I, I don't like how polarized the country has gotten, but, but in the meantime, that other side, they are stupid and evil, and this gives a little bit of satisfaction. Most people don't have the power that comes from the knowledge that they actually are more addicted than they think to the outrage industrial complex that they're being manipulated more than they think by the hateful pundits and the Twitter trolls on their own side. And, and one of the th- things I've tried to do in this book is, is to, to help people understand that, that, they're, that people are, are exerting power over them for all kinds of profit motives. And it's time to, as I say in the book, stand up to the man. You, you um, mentioned in the book the example, I think the family's name is Gosar. Um, this was a guy who was running for office in Arizona. Yeah, he won. He won. Mm-hmm. Uh, he won despite the fact that every one of his siblings participated in a TV commercial saying he was a terrible guy and you should vote against him. And But, but really in vitriolic terms. You know, really, one yes, say that he's motivated strong. by just big corporate interests and money, yeah. another one who's saying he's racist. It was six of his, I don't know if it was all of his siblings, but it was six of his siblings. And, and, and his parents lined up behind him. It was a terrible family polarization. It was it was really very sad. So I, I think that that's, regardless of where you stand on the political spectrum, I think that was a really harsh, ugly performance um, display of family dysfunction. Yeah. <laughs> I played this for a friend who who identifies as a progressive. Right. Very recently, after you mentioned it in the book, I looked it up, watched it, and then said to a friend, what do you think of this? She said, fantastic, because it pushed that button that for her yeah 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 exactly yeah. right but you know, when you th- when we think about it look uh, it's it's i had a, a couple of experiences that really inform my thinking on this um and i was giving a i do about 175 speeches a year i'm on the road all the time That's I, all? yeah and i well you know i'm president of a think tank which requires very little thinking in tanks it's mostly raising money and giving speeches so it's mm-hmm. like running for the senate and never getting elected and i was in a i do you know very left-wing audiences at universities and conservative activist groups all different kinds of groups which is great and it was in the latter category in, in New Hampshire uh, in 2014 when I was the I wound up on a program where I was the only person not running for president it's like 14 presidential candidates in me or a presumptive presidential presidential candidates in me and when I got up to give my speech I thought yeah what can I do this different because I don't have to get elected and so I made this point in my speech I said my friends uh, I, I'm going to tell you things uh, that you're probably going to agree with but I want you to remember the people that don't agree with you because they're political progressives they're liberals uh, they're not stupid and they're not evil. They're simply Americans who disagree with you on public policy. And your job is to persuade them, not insult them. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't think it was going to be a, a big applause line. But the applause did come in a minute later when a lady said, I think they're stupid and evil. Okay, so I'm thinking, huh, that's an, a pure expression of contempt. And, 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 and frankly, I knew it was a joke. She wasn't trying to hurt my feelings. But it made me think of, of my family because I come from Seattle. You know, my mother was a right. painter and my father was a professor and and Seattle so you know what do you think their politics were I, I was the sort of the black sheep politically the family because I'm more on the center right in my politics so not then, always by the way right no not always although since I've been really thinking about politics mm-hmm. you know I started studying political economy and, and and public policy and economics but when um the next night I was someplace I can't remember where I was speaking after the New Hampshire rally it was, it was really on my mind and so I asked the audience for a show of hands I said and, and I'll ask the audience, our audience, to, to, is what they would think, what they would do if they, were, if they were asked this question. How many of you love somebody with whom you disagree politically? And every hand went up. I thought, huh. 
you know, we're we're actually being told to hate the people with whom we disagree, even if they're to repudiate them, even if they're family members. Your friend who saw that that very sad set of ads where family members of a congressman are saying that he's a deviant, and he replied saying, that's just like Stalinists everywhere. I don't want that. People don't want that in their own families. And yet it somehow scratches an itch in their lives. And that, that's the addiction. That's the, the counterproductive uh, thing that we've got coursing through our political discourse. Some people are getting very rich on the basis of that. And the rest of us have a, have a habit. And there's no way to argue that that's helping America today. But of the 7% of people who you say are actively propagating, generating, consciously pursuing this sort of political discourse. Do you think they're all cynical? Do you think that they're that do you, do you, you don't think that there's actual conviction um, and sincerity I, in what they're saying? Um, I th- yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I think that there is a lot of cynicism and, and part of the reason is I, you know, I'm involved in a lot of communications and media and, and I, I see people that have pretty good careers on the basis of this. Um, but of course, some really do think that this somehow is the, the best strategy. Now, one of the thing, the questions I always ask is, what does winning mean? Does it mean to utterly repudiate 40% of the population? Does it mean to, to, to separate? Does it mean for your state to leave the union? Does it mean to shut down the voices of people with whom you disagree? What does it mean? Do you wish we were a one-party state? And the answer is always no. The answer has to be, well, what I really want, you know, what it comes down to when you have a heart-to-heart discussion with people who are deeply, deeply in the outrage industrial complex part of our economy, is they want, to, they want other people to stop thinking in this wrong way. They don't want to banish them. They don't want to kick them out of the country. They don't want to imprison them or kill them. They want them to think differently. So then you ask, has everybody in, in, anybody in history ever been insulted into agreement? You know, if you actually want to change the way somebody's the way somebody thinks, do you think it helps to say you're a deviant, you're evil, you're stupid? You know, go through the list of the terribles that people will call each other on social media or on cable TV or politicians will do even in person, and you'll find that there is zero percent chance that using that contempt that somebody will be brought around to your point of view. Okay, if it's okay if if you're only job is to is to lock down your cable audience if your only job is to lock down your base the base of your support through hateful rhetoric that is the essence of cynicism that is the antithesis of aspiration that that that, that uh, utterly that that eviscerates any idea that we could come together around some shared moral values and and to maintain a disagreement well, but something like gerrymandering supports that system i mean it, it, all you need to do is to win your base and you get to win the election Indeed you do. And that's one of the things that most Americans really uh, regret, given the fact that 93% say they they hate how divided we've become as a country. Americans recognize that that's not the the way we want to coexist. Look, there's nothing, one of the things I argue in this book is that disagreement's great. There's no reason. I mean, I don't, we would never want to go to, nobody would watch the fabulous success of IQ squared and say, oh, you know what I got from that? Though what what we really want is to force consensus at the end of that. (laughs) No, we want to, we actually want want the disagreement to continue in the context of, of some shared moral values of what our country is. That disagreement is what makes us great. That, that disagreement is what makes us strong. Anything less would bring us mediocrity. And, and, and that's, so the, the basic point of that is that we need not to disagree less. We need to disagree better. What's the, what's the benefit of disagreement? The benefit of disagreement is that it actually, that iron sharpens iron, that there's nothing wrong in a pluralistic society with people seeing things in a different way, mm-hmm. but they need to be able to go to bed and wake up the next day and work together, that notwithstanding. I really don't want the Boston Red Sox and the New York Yankees to agree on who should win the game. On the contrary, I want them for all eternity to think that either side should lose and that their side should win. That's why it's good. That's why it's interesting. That's why baseball is, is, is very high level and great. The same thing is true. I don't, I don't want the Democrats and Republicans to agree on who's going to win the election. That's collusion. That's what happens in, in you know, tin pot dictatorships. I, I certainly don't want Coke and Pepsi to decide, you know, who's going to buy all these but products. But we're in a different place when it comes to policy, when it comes to policy about, let's say, gun control, abortion rights, voting rights, etc. Ultimately, policies have to come into place. And if one side, yeah, yeah, yeah and what I'm saying is I don't think it makes practical sense to think in terms of an eternal battle in which neither side is going to be able to agree with the other side in the same way that you don't you never want the Yankees 
to do anything but try to beat the Red Sox. So how does that translate well, to, to policy? There certainly are certain things on which we're going to compromise because each side is going to get as much as it can. I mean, each side is going to get uh, as much as is necessary to be satisfied. And that's an important thing to do. And, and you can only work in a society in which people understand the underlying fundamental moral goal. Uh, you know, what we want when we're talking about public policy, it's it's in the United States, it's supposed to be because we want the whole country to be as well off as it can be. We want people to be safe. We want people to be able to pursue their happiness. All the goals that come to us through the Constitution and Declaration of Independence, these are the, the moral goals that we share. We see the policies to get to those things in a different way, and we have to make some compromises. But there's nothing wrong with not agreeing with the other side's policy positions. It just means that we have to accept the fact that more people agree with the other guys, accept democratic elections, and and then come back ready to persuade. But there needs to be some point of conversion. I mean, there needs to be some point where the where you you shift from competing as hard as you can in your ideas to deciding that some of your ideas are wrong. Oh, for sure, you have to be persuadable and not just persuasive. In point of fact, that's true. And there are a lot of a lot of ways and things in which I have been persuaded because and that's just the force of argument because the stories of how things affect people's lives. Can have, you think of an example of something well, I, where you had a very strong conviction and you 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 argued, you stood your ground. You argued well, the other guy argued well, and it led to you changing your mind? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, over the last 10 years, I've been president of AEI, I've become much more sympathetic to, to, to safety net policies in this country. And part of the reason is because, you know, it, it, as, a, as a strict matter of free enterprise, safety net policies, they can have counterproductive uh, effects on people's incentives. They can make it easier for people to live without work. And I've recognized that the, the, the needs across the population are such that we have to make sacrifices along these lines. And I'm much, much more sympathetic to, to more uh, generous safety net policies than I, than I was certainly 10 years ago. So what was in, happening in the interactions with whoever you were having an argument with about that that allowed you to, to what gave you, in a sense, permission to yourself to change your mind? I Me, guess, for one thing, the other guy didn't insult you. Well, to begin with, for sure. But, but beyond that, I think that what really affected how I think about those things, and again, I have not come over to a strict you know, left-wing point of view on this. Um, I, I'm just saying that I've, I, I'm, I think that the generosity of the safety net policies is, or safety nets is more important than I used to think it was. Mm -hmm. um, it had to do with being exposed to more people who are affected by these policies than I had been before. I've met a lot more people. I mean, Pope Francis always talks about the importance that shepherds need to smell like the sheep. That's what he always talks about. That's a really evocative thing. And that's, that's actually really important for the, for the Catholic bishops, but I think it's actually really important for all of us who do work in public policy, who do work in politics, to, 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 to meet the people who are affected by these public policies because we become much less rigid in our ideology. So... You know, I've been persuaded by a lot of different things. I think my ideology has changed, but it's very—it makes it that much more difficult for you to be persuadable when the person who's tr who, who wishes they could persuade you saying, says you're an idiot. Are are there viewpoints though that do in fact tell you that the holder of that viewpoint? is morally bankrupt. It's certainly possible that that's the case, but it's never in your interest to assume so. Number one, it's that's a, it leads you to ad hominem arguments to say, I, I know what you really want. I know what your motive is. Mm -hmm. And and generally speaking, you don't know what somebody else's motive. You suspect what somebody else's motive is, but it's there are a lot of studies that there's good social science showing that we know people's motives a lot less than we think we do. Second, even if we do know their motives, assuming as such and blowing them up forecloses any opportunity to have a productive dialogue. So it's even worth pretending you didn't you didn't think that the person was a deviant, even if you do, because as long as you keep talking, you got a chance. Otherwise you don't. But if you, if we go back pre-Civil War, the abolitionist campaign against slavery certainly was a moral crusade. Certainly mm -hmm. was a moral crusade. And so I, I would I would imagine it would be difficult for them, no matter how they articulated their position, not to be strongly implying that their opponents in that argument were immoral. Um, and in retrospect, 150 years later, I think virtually every one of us would want to side, imagining ourselves at least siding with the abolitionists in that one, in which case we would be taking a moral position over a policy that was was very well established and uh, and so deeply entrenched that those who practiced it did not see it as crazy or immoral. So, but let me, let me stop I know you. that's a very extreme example. No, no, no but, but let me stop you on that because that's an important example. Uh, the, the abolitionists were generally evangelical Christians. And the evangelical Christians made a very, very strong point 
which is that they needed to convert the hearts of the people that were engaged in grave sin. One of the central tenets of American evangelical Christianity is not that, that someone else is, is inherently evil. On the contrary, that they may hold evil views, deeply mistaken evil views. And, and our responsibility, evangelical Christians have always said that their responsibility was to get the slaveholder to heaven too. You know, and, and I recognize that there's sometimes when you got to get out the power tools. I mean, the Civil War was the ultimate power tool, but the abolitionist per se, they, they were a good example of the principles that I'm talking about here. How many people did they persuade? They, I, they, I know we don't know specifically, we, we don't but know. sort of in an anecdotal but sense. They certainly did I mean, persuade we went to a lot. War, the fact that a war was fought for it suggests that they weren't particularly successful at no, changing they, minds. No, they, they were. If you go back to 1830, there was, in the North, there was no appetite for getting rid of slavery in the South. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there was, you know, the whole, the, the abolitionists were enormously uh, successful in changing the hearts and attitudes towards slavery in the non-slave regions, which made it possible for the United States to engage productively in, in the abolitionist movement, and then later even to pursue the war as was necessary. Hi, John Donvan here, and I'm taking this break to thank you, our listeners, really, for supporting what we do at Intelligence Squared. Um, Given how toxic our political culture has become, it is just great to know that our audience stays with us for an hour as we go deeply into a single issue with four experts that put reason and fact in front of everything else. We don't play with sound bites or games or talking heads screaming at each other. We know that promoting civility and reason matters, and that's why Intelligence Squared U.S. exists. We are a nonprofit organization. You have heard me say this before. Our debates, which are recorded in front of live audiences in cities around the country, are broadcast to millions of people through public radio and podcasts and cable television, and it is all free of charge. We do it, and then we put it out there. And to do that... We rely on the support of our audience and our community to continue producing these debates. So if you are interested in getting behind that and joining a group of people dedicated to ensuring reasoned debate on topics ranging from whether we should try to bring back extinct animals, which we did recently, to the fate of the American economy, I hope you'll make a donation to support our work. You can do that online at iq2us.org. That's iq, the number two, us.org, or... You can text the word debate to 797979. That's debate 797979. And you'll also get information there about becoming a member. When you make a donation and become a member, you get VIP tickets to all of our debates and invitations to private post-debate receptions with me and the debaters and other benefits as well. So thank you for helping us to prove that the demand for real debate on contentious topics has not been lost. Now back to my conversation with Arthur Brooks. I, before we, we, we started, I, w- I just went online and uh, a tweet happened to come up, and I, <laughs> I mentioned this to you before so you know what's coming, but um, a, a regular uh, Twitter uh, participant who has a large number of followers, well, more than 100,000, so not fringe, fringe, um, very, very vociferous critic of President Trump, mm-hmm. was listing, put forth a list of adjectives describing Trump, including obnoxious and evil and an asshole, uh, and it went on and on and on. Um, forgive my use of the vulgarity, but uh, I want to get to the core of what the tone <laughs> of this was. You're quoting. It wasn't. Yes. It wasn't original. Time. Yeah. Um, what What about what's going on on Twitter? Twitter is a contempt machine. If you spend time on Twitter, you're going to think that we're going to. You'll be persuaded that we're within five minutes of a hot shooting civil war. Then you turn off Twitter. It's like maybe for Lent, you go on a Twitter fast. And, and you, you take the app off your phone and you start talking to your neighbors, including your neighbors who are, if you're a liberal, you're conservative neighbors. And if you're conservative, you're liberal neighbors. And it turns out we kind of like each other and we're all trying to raise our kids. And it, it isn't as awful as it seems. Why? Because Twitter brings out the worst in people. And that's not just Twitter, by the way. It's the comment section of any newspaper. It's all social media at this point for a bunch of reasons. Number one is that we dehumanize ourselves by being disembodied Twitter handles, even worse, anonymous Twitter handles in many cases. But we don't take complete responsibility. It's kind of like the way that, that we complain. I mean, you and I live in the Washington, D.C. region, and we you know, the traffic is awful. People treat each other with, with complete contempt behind the wheel when you're disembodied. Mm-hmm. The best way to fix traffic is, you know, I'm to put your your um, your name and your house of worship maybe on a bumper sticker on the back of your car. You know, that will, that humanizes you. I just got flipped off by John Donvan from Our Lady of Sorrows. Unlikely. 
unlikely. And so what we need to do is to declare war on anonymity, to humanize ourselves completely, and the worst possible way to get those attributes of people such that we can have a productive you know, competition of ideas is by doing it on social media, it brings out the worst in people. You think anonymity is the, is a core part of the problem? It's a huge problem. I mean, it's a, basically one of the things that I recommend. And, and again, the, the point of my book is not just better discourse. The point of my book is that each person can be a happier person and a more persuasive person. So this is, it's, ni- it's 10% problems, it's 90% solutions, and the solutions are how people can... Can, it's a self-improvement book, effectively. And I, I took it a lot from the teaching of Martin Luther King, who, who recognized that we needed institutional solutions to racism and bigotry, which is why the Department of Justice was so effective in dismantling a lot of racist institutions. But fundamentally, it had to be a revolution of each person in his or her heart. And in so doing, we could live up to our own values and be happier people. That's a lot of what, what I'm doing. So I recommend on social media, as part of the self-improvement of this, is that people make a commitment never to being anonymous and never engaging with any anonymous person, no matter how provocative that person is. And then I recommend to the social media companies, they start working on, this is an existential crisis for them. They start working on technologies that verifies the identity of people and actually starts kicking people off who refuse to be. That's a huge task. It's a huge task, except that the technology kind of exists. And, and it? Yeah, and it's actually being developed right now from people and in, in innovators in, in Silicon Valley that, that are talking about ways that we can have actual proof positive verification of identity. It's not, it's, it's, it's pretty porous right now and people can get around it. On the other hand, uh, if people put their minds to this, they could positively ID people. You get a fingerprint on, on, on your use of social media such that you couldn't post unless it was really you. So you're a big believer in the idea that if we see each other face to face, we look each other in the eyes, it's a lot harder to be contemptuous to one another. Much harder. And there's a, there's a lot of brain science behind this. I mean, we do brain-to-brain coupling when we look each other in the eyes. We, we stimulate oxytocin, which is a, a neurotransmitter of the neurotransmitter of human love. When people look each other in the eyes, they tend to be friendlier. They tend to be more empathic. And, you know, when they can't see each other in the eyes, like humans are made to deal with each other. They're not made to communicate in 140 characters from across the world with each other by anonymous handles. That's That's absolutely an, un, an inhuman way for people to behave. I mean, in, in one of the many ways that the uh, internet has disappointed expectations that were raised and touted and celebrated in the 90s about the world it was going to create, one of them was it was going to bring us closer together yeah. because we could interact with people whose worlds we would never be able to get anywhere close to physically. That's right. And yet that hasn't happened. Well, in, in a way it has. It just hasn't had a, it's had a different, it's had a different result. There's, you know, all communications technology innovations, they all have sort of three phases. The first is the promise phase. A thousand flowers are going to bloom. People are going to be more connected. People are going to have better relationships. They're going to have new relationships. The second phase is the dystopia phase, where it turns out that this new technology is substituting for real human relationships as such as denigrating our discourse and is making us unhappy. And that's where we are with social media today. The third stage, and, and because it's it's propagating communication between people who don't know each other all over the world, but it's doing so in a really destructive way. The third phase is where we move from having lousy substitutes for human relationships to actual complements to our human relationships. And that's ordinarily what happens when people figure out how to use a technology. I strongly suspect that within 10 years, social media will be a commodity, that there'll be there'll be platforms that are kind of hard to, to distinguish from one another. It'd be like the telephone. I mean, you don't know who actually provides your cell phone minutes. I mean, you could figure that out, but cell phone minutes are cell phone minutes. And you don't shut yourself up in the house and spend your whole day on the cell phone talking. That's, that's just not... And yet, in the late 50s, when it became ubiquitous across, across households, people would not go out of the house for two and three weeks at a time. That was in the stage two of telephones. Now we're in stage three. So you think social media can be safe? Yeah, I think social media actually has a lot of promise. It won't live up to its initial hype, uh-huh. but it won't be a, a, a source of misery like a lot of people find it today. I think that where my kids, for example, already use social media more, more responsibly than people in their 20s. My kids use it to meet up with their friends, figure out what they're going to do in person. I have two or three friends that they're joking around with, but they certainly are not engaged in conversations with vast numbers of strangers. They're, they're not, you know, posting their political views. They couldn't care less about that, uh, like a lot of people are. It's amazing in my, in my world of scholarship. You know, I know distinguished professors at Princeton and Harvard, uh, Berkeley and Stanford, who used to write books and articles and are spending the better part of their days writing Twitter posts today because I think probably because of the dopamine hits that they get, the immediate payoff. What do you do when you have a political leader who lies? And is it 
provocative and contemptuous to call that lying political leader a liar. It's a very interesting thing, you know, when you when you, you know you and I have kids, and and I'm sure you have children, right? And yeah, and your kids were teenagers, still are, or they're were all teenagers. through college now. They're all through college. Congratulations. Um, when you've got teenagers, one of the things the things that you quickly learn is that they engage in behavior you think is terrible, but you should never say that they are uh, defined by that behavior. Mm-hmm. If you actually want to maintain a relationship with somebody and have any persuasion over that person, and certainly have any persuasion over the people that look to that person, you never label that person by the act that you find to be deviant. Never, never, never. Okay, so so one of the things that I recommend to people who are listening to us is that when somebody forget just the president of the United States, anybody who's saying something I didn't you believe the to president be, of the United States, but <laughs> oh, I thought but you go did. for it. I thought you did. Politicians <laughs> yeah. or or anyone for that matter who's saying something you believe to be untrue, say what you just said is not correct. I'm going to tell you why I think that's wrong. But to say you are a liar is to define the person by the statement, is to define the person by the ideology. And in so doing, you've, you've, you've ruled out the possibility that the person is going to listen. And furthermore, and probably more importantly, the people who look to or respect that person will suddenly become your enemies as well. So in a certain sense, your antidote to this situation is a suggestion to all of us that we turn the other cheek. Am I right about that? Not really. It's interesting no? because it's uh, what I'm suggesting is something a little bit more Buddhist than that. Uh, great Buddhist masters say that the, the secret to mastering yourself is expanding the range between stimulus and response. So we're stimulated by things constantly. And what you want to, to master yourself is to have a big space between the stimulus that you get. Let's say somebody treats you with contempt. If you go on Twitter, it'll be 20 seconds. And the response, which is what you, and the more space you have between those two things, gives you the choice of how you're going to respond. Now, by the way, your mom was a Buddhist master. How do I know? Because she said, count to 10 after you get angry before you say something. So, so expanding that and then choosing your response in a way that is most persuasive and will make you most happy. What is that? And and the reason I say this is a little bit of Buddhism is because I got this advice from His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who shows up a lot throughout this book. He's a close friend and somebody I've worked with for six and a half years. It's the weirdest thing. I mean, it's what a blessing in my life that I serendipitously became friends with the Dalai Lama. And I've done a lot of work and we've co-authored a little bit together. And I see him a couple of times a year in his home in Dharamsala. And when I was working on this book, I said, Your Holiness, what should I do when I'm treated with contempt? Because he's treated with contempt constantly. I mean, he was kicked out of China by the communist Chinese when he led his people into exile and poverty when he was 24 years old, the ultimate contempt. He said, respond with warm-heartedness. And, you know, I'm like, you got anything else? Because, you know, that seems sort of weak. But then I thought about it. I mean, he's a, he's a tough guy. He's a strong man. And to, to choose that response, no matter how you feel, is a very strong thing to do. I said, well, what if I don't feel? He says, doesn't matter. And there's a ton of brain science that shows that your attitude will follow your action. If you choose warm-heartedness, notwithstanding the contempt that you feel, other people, and again, I show all the evidence in this book, the brain science, the social science, the political science, that shows when people see you responding to contempt with kindness, with respect, with warm-heartedness, maybe even love, they see you as a more persuasive leader. And you also Further, say to fake it. And, and to fake it because because at, at, ver- at first it's hard to do. Yeah. It's a real hard, it's a, it's a habit. You have to reprogram a part of your brain called the nucleus accumbens mm-hmm. that governs your communications habits. You have to reprogram it. You can only do that manually by expanding the, the range between stimulus and response and choosing the appropriate reaction that you want. Then in so doing, and here's the, here's the most important part from my point of view. When we answer contempt with contempt, it raises our, our level of frustration, depression, loneliness, anxiety, stress hormones. We're less happy when we do that. We can actually be more persuasive, more successful, have better, happier lives, and maybe even start to change the country if we can choose kindness and respect when other people treat us with contempt. You also share some research that says if you just smile, even if you're not, if you make the muscles smile. Yeah. You yeah. know, put, take off that mask of tragedy, yeah. slap on a happy face. You actually feel better, yeah. ultimately. Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. And that's, a, that's a, there's a lot of research that shows this from the 1990s. There's a, there are two little muscles in the corners of your eyes called the orbicularis oculi muscles. And those are the smiling muscles. And so when you, if you want to know if somebody's happy to see you, don't look at the mouth, look at the eyes. 
people who have old people who have really pronounced crow's feet have had lots of happy smiling throughout their lives. And so, John, your and my goal in life should be to have very pronounced crow's feet when we're 80, because that means we've been smiling with happiness a lot. Okay, now here's where the research gets interesting. It's not that when you're happy, you smile like that. When you force yourself to smile in a happy way, look in the mirror, you look like an insane person, look in the mirror, and when you when you force yourself to smile, it's called a Duchenne smile, your brain will be fooled and you will feel happier. It's, a, it's an extraordinary thing, but it's just a, it's a, it's a, an example of the principle that I'm trying to get across that, look, we, we are our own masters. One of the reasons that I you know, have a lot of libertarian friends, the reason I, 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 ad, I admire them is because they're so comfortable with the idea that they are the masters of their own fate, that they can actually choose their own reactions. They can choose all the things about themselves. One of the things I, I just... I, I, I just dislike so much about modern life is that we, we act like victims all the time, victims of what other people say. We're not. I mean, we can be, they can, people can victimize us. <clears throat> that happens constantly, but we're not victims when people treat us with, say, contemptuous things to us. Do you, do you work to put yourself in the shoes of individuals who do, in fact, argue that there are certain topics that are beyond the pale? And I'm talking about topics that many others would say are at minimum in a gray area. Right. Um, and I'm t this is happening on college campuses. Right. The, the deplatforming of speakers who might be coming on to challenge premises, say, of affirmative action, something like that, are are seen deemed by students and some faculty as so threatening and so offensive that they don't deserve a platform. Uh, now, I know from the book you have a real issue with that, right. as do many conservatives, because often the and, and many liberals, too, by the yeah, way. I, yeah, I, yeah, actually, right. completely, I can see yeah. that as well. But do you ever explore the mind the, or the position of the people who are making those arguments? Now, earlier you said there is uh, this, in, this uh, outrage industrial complex. People are advancing political careers and they're advancing journalism careers by trying to stir these things up. But as I've seen these tapes, particularly of the students, and particularly if they're students of color, I actually think that I see true hurt and pain and outrage, not somebody who's cynically trying to whip up a crowd to advance their own careers or sell their own books or anything like that, that they actually do have in their from their point of view, a principled and reasoned position for, in this particular case, thinking the topic is beyond the pale. Right. And I'm wondering, do you try to put yourself in their position? For sure. So for what, sure. what do you make of their position? What do you what do you learn by exploring their point of view? I think when, I, when I'm on college campuses, and I'm an academic, so I think about this a lot, <clears throat> and I'm on college campuses pretty, pretty, pretty frequently, um, I think that we have inadvertently fomented a climate of fear, a culture of fear, particularly among young people. I have a lot of data that show that young people are more fearful than people were in their 20s when you and I were in our 20s. For example, we find that, that people are a lot more fearful of asking somebody out on a date than they were in the past. It's, it's just a simple thing like that. It, it, the result is that there's people are less likely to be in relationships. They're less likely to be in love. They're less likely to get married. They're less likely to, uh, they're even less likely to have sex today. People, you know, people are age to know, drive. Yeah. And it, it's, it's an extraordinary thing. And, and part of it has to do with the fact that in our culture, we've allowed people out of the house much later. We've adjudicated people's disputes. And on campuses, we've, we've, uh, we've, we've told them that, that in point of fact, if you hear something that's it's unduly objectionable, it will make you unsafe. There's a whole ideology that says there's a safety issue with hearing things that are too, that are too objectionable. I'm not going to say that there aren't things that aren't points of view that are objectionable. Can we I, need to I create say, a, a... Is it less that it's it's unsafe to hear and feel it as opposed to it's unsafe to let these ideas gain traction, gain credibility, leading to policy, you know, real, real policy changes that could, could threaten the students? In other words, you're saying they're, that they're, it's about their sensitivity. And I'm, I'm asking you, is it possible that it's actually about their projection of what might happen in terms of consequences, real consequences? I think, of course. I mean, there are certain things that we have to be careful of to the, the, so that they don't take hold in our society. But, but suppressing uh, the people's speech is almost never a way to do that. You know, you know, people who listen to us who really object to the election 
election of Donald Trump have to recognize that 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 suppressing certain ways of thinking and the frustrations of a lot of people, the frustrations of a lot of people who who don't feel that they had a voice were the reason that that the whole country was caught off guard. I mean, everybody, even people who liked Donald Trump, were shocked when he got elected president and, and spent months trying to figure out what had actually happened. Well, you don't want to be surprised. You want to be able to talk about things and and take and go hammer and tongs with ideologies that you think are wrong. That's, that is in a democratic capitalist society how we deal with aberrant ideologies is by taking them on, not by suppressing them. It's always a counterproductive strategy to suppress these points of view. On campuses, by the way, I mean, one of the, one of the things that leads me to think that it's the sensibilities of people that leads them to feel unsafe is the reason we have things like, like trigger warnings. And to, to, to warning, you're about to hear something and, and give people the option of not hearing something as opposed to it's not it's not just deplatforming. It's a, yeah. not to be, safe spaces where you can go to a safe space where you won't be you won't be exposed to these directional points of view. I think that that basically is creating the, the, the equivalent of a sort of a social peanut allergy which is not helping young people when they come out. It's not helping them to be strong. You know, I don't begrudge anybody their ideology, people on the, on the left or the right, but particularly my, my, my friends on the political left, I think they can make young people much stronger to be ready to take on ideology they think are deeply wrong only if they've been exposed to them and they've been able to be exposed to meritorious arguments in contra of, of those arguments that they hear. And I think that a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, our society is is creating too much fear around hearing these things for people such that they're unprepared. And, and I, think it's, I don't think it's good for our democracy. I want to, if, if you can indulge me for a couple of minutes to share some personal experience yeah, from do. Intelligence Squared. Yeah. What I have found very, very interesting after moderating somewhere in the north of 150 debates. It's amazing, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's flown by. Um, is, is actually how easy it is to have a good, tough, really tough, argument, but the argument is good in the sense that nobody's feelings really get hurt, at least on the stage, and I don't think in the audience, we're in front of live audiences. But you, I, I know that in almost every debate we have, I speak with the debaters afterwards, and I say to them, did you hear anything from the other side that you actually hadn't really considered before that was kind of a good point well made? And they almost always say yes. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that I like to go out into the, into the lobby when the audience is letting out, and people are just buzzing with excitement at having witnessed a kind of discourse that they don't get to see very much. By that I mean, just by definition, if there's a debate, you're going to hear two sides of an argument for an hour and a half, a minimum of two sides, sometimes other, other yeah. points of view. And, and it's almost exhilarating for those folks to have had that experience. And even more exhilarating are the ones we ask people to vote before and after the debate to see if they change their minds. Most people don't change their minds most of the time, but enough do so that it swings the vote in the end, which means a very large proportion of the audience ultimately changes their minds. And I, I always wonder, are they sheepish about having changed their minds? Was it re- Were they reluctant? Was it difficult? And the answer is that it's, again, kind of exhilarating. Oh, yeah. They didn't know that that oh, was yeah. going to happen oh, no, to no. them. And it's it turns into kind of a positive experience. I'm not saying to say you were wrong. But to say that you were perhaps enlightened yeah. is the experience that People they have. People love that. They need to be created. They need, you, you, what you guys do, it's an, the amazing thing. I mean, how big is your audience on NPR? Oh, huge. It's huge, yeah. right? And it's completely implausible that a, that a civilized debate between people who deeply disagree, two on two for an hour and a half on public radio, is going to get a big audience. That's a, that's a, that's a guaranteed loser by the, by, the, by the business models of modern media. And yet it's not. And yet it's not. And, yeah. and this is a key thing. Look, what you've tapped into is that 93% of Americans hate how divided we become as a country, and they want to be able to appreciate things from the other side. You've actually exposed that. That's a huge market opportunity for commercial media it's a huge market opportunity for for politicians that want to bring the country together that that basically say i i i look i completely disagree with you on this issue completely disagree with you that doesn't mean you're stupid and evil that just means you're wrong and my job is to try to enlighten you and if we can't if i can't do it i'm still going to have a relationship with you i'm going to shake hands with you at the end which oh it's, happens it's at completely the end of every subversive debate. by the standards of the outrage industrial <laughs> complex you're like a you're like a you're like a 60s radical man but you know what? You know what really makes it work? And I say this as the moderator, and I get a lot of very nice compliments from people about my moderating skills. But the, the greatest weapon I have as a moderator, first of all, I have a team behind me that prepa- helps me prepare for these debates and put these on, put these on give me research, uh, selects the right people, 
figures out a format. But the best thing I have going for my favor is that we have rules. There, we, there are specific rules on how long you can speak, how you have to stay on topic. Uh, we, I, I step in on ad hominem arguments. We don't. We almost never have them anymore. But in the mm. early days, I would, I would stop a debater who, just by making the point, you're not attacking the idea, you're attacking the person, right. and and that's not going to change anybody's mind. I mean, almost quoting from your book, it's not right. going to be persuasive. Right. But the, but the fact that we have sort of Queensbury rules for debate is an enormous advantage in being able to moderate a program because I can always refer back to those. Most obviously you're talking too long, but even more obviously you're crossing the line into the wrong kind of argument, an invalid kind of argument. Right. Um, and, and, and also you need to stop talking now because the other guy gets a chance to talk right. as well. So talk to me about what I'm talking about is having some rules for the discourse. Yeah, it's well, basically what you're talking about is, is 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 creating a space for discourse that looks like a baseball game. Yeah, you know, if you basically you you went to Yankee Stadium and the manager of the Yankees said, "Well, when we're in Yankee Stadium, we get four outs." Well, you're an idiot. I mean, that's that's actually that's a terrible game where you're trying to change the rules simply because you've got a hometown advantage. But yet, that's how a lot of the arguments work. That's not how you do it, and people appreciate it. You know, it's it, the the rules that we have to engage in. Look, not everybody can be in an IQ square debate. Not everybody can be in a baseball game. But all of us can set up some basic rules in the way that we deal with each other. The most successful marriages are based on rules. Look, everybody gets really, really mad in in a marriage. And one of the things that successful couples do is they know that there are lines you're not going to cross, and they know that they have to listen to the other person. They have de facto IQ squared. Intelligence squared debate rules in their houses, and and that's it's a lot of what I'm I'm suggesting is that we will be happier, we'll be a lot better. It's you know this is G.K. Chesterton always talked about the fact that that we if you if you take uh, you know a bunch of you know boys on the top of a mountain and and you tell them to play baseball on the top of the mountain and there's sheer cliffs all around they'll be shaking with fear and lying on the ground but the minute you put up high fences around the the the, the cliffs on the top of the high mountain they're going to be playing ball and having a great time and this is exactly the principle that you've explained and that's a lot of what we need to do in treating each other with with warm-heartedness even when we're treated with contempt to change the rules of the game i mean it's so it's so beautiful when people can change the rules of the game they can be happier as people and then actually see maybe somebody else's heart changed as well we got to get you on our stage i would love that i would love that i mean i just i just i like so much what you're doing and i'm a, I'm a fan and i'm a consumer that would be terrific thanks arthur so much for joining us thank you thanks to iq squared maybe um the audience of intelligence squared can can save america boy maybe we can <laughs> we'll find out once again arthur brooks book is called love your enemies how Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. I'm John Donvan. We'll see you next time. This episode of Intelligence Squared U.S. was recorded in Washington, D.C. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. Leah Mathau is chief content officer. Amy Kraft is director of operations and production. Shay O'Mara is manager of editorial operations. Rob Christensen is the radio producer. And I'm your host, John Donvan. Thank you for tuning into this special episode of Intelligence Squared U.S. Next week, we'll be back with a debate on whether the Republican Party should renominate Donald Trump in 2020. Then on April 18th, we're going to be in New York with a live debate on the practice of solar geoengineering. This is a technique where scientists would try to dim the sun to cool down global temperatures. For this one, we've got Australian professor Clive Hamilton, Oxford's Anjali Viswamahanan, Harvard's David Keith, and UCLA's Ted Parson. If you're in New York, there are still tickets to the live show available at iq2us.org. You can also text the word DEBATE to 797979, and that will get you a link for tickets sent directly to you.